2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. This is a Man of God Network, a podcast of Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary in Owensboro, Kentucky. This is the voice of the narrated Puritan. For more narrations, go to puritanaudiobooks.com. Today it is my hope that I have a very interesting program for you. How were the Reformed Baptist churches started in the 1950s and 1960s? In a book that was published a few years ago, it was traced back to A.W. Pink. I've done my own research and I've come to the conclusion that the proper person who should receive credit is the editor of Pink's early works, I.C. Herendine. I want to say in a footnote that when I began to put this biographical sketch together, it was because I was interested in the history of Bible Truth Depot. I knew that that was taken over by Reiner, and that was Reiner Publications, after Heron Dean retired. And I also knew that Ken Kriegel bought what remained of the entire bookstore at the time I got to Grand Rapids, Michigan, so I saw these books in about January. As I was studying this history, I discovered the name I see Herendine in something called the Cold Traders Journal for 1911. In about 700 pages in of a book that's over a thousand pages of collected newspapers, which shows the capabilities of the search engine Google, I saw I.C. Herendine's name, and I saw a group of coal traders from Buffalo, New York, and I read the description. And as I was comparing it to what little biographical information I had, uh, it said that he was at the time in Buffalo, New York. So he got married, and immediately after they got married, they moved up to Buffalo, New York. So that confirmed for me I was looking at a picture of I.C. Herendine, which very few people have ever seen before. There I kept digging to whatever information I could find, and that's why I put this podcast together. I.C. Herendine has really never gotten a lot of credit for the influence he has had on early Reformed Baptist churches in the last century. After I'd finished this podcast, I got a private message on Sermon Audio from the audio that was uploaded there from a listener, and he said, Dear Sir, my name is Isaac. I'm 19 years old and live in Pennsylvania. For a matter of months, I've been researching the life of I.C. Herendine, and in doing so, discovered your podcast on the story of Pink and Herendine. I'm aware of most of the material of your podcast and have discovered some information on Herendine I thought you would like to know. His full name is Erwin Charles Herendine, and he is buried in the old Cedar Cemetery in Swingle. By researching old newspapers, I found pieces of information on Herendine and the Bible Truth Depot. I hope to write a small biography on Herendine at some point soon. I also wondered if he knew anything further that was not mentioned in the podcast, such as what became of the Herendine papers. He told me he had some more information that would be useful, but he wrote to me too late for this podcast. I will be interested in whatever he has. 
Further, there's not a lot of information on him on the internet. There was a biography that he gave at the request of Lawrence and Amy Nelson in 1968. I actually knew the Nelsons because they were still working in the Chapel Library when it was then in Venice, Florida. In December of 1985, that's where I got my start narrating books. They also were correspondents with A.W. Pink, and he asked Herendine to share his testimony. But before I get to the testimony, which I will read because the audio is very difficult to listen to, being that old, I want to tell the background story. When in the late 1960s, Lawrence and Amy Nelson took over the publishing of A.W. Pink's smaller works under the title of the Chapel Library, located in Venice, Florida, they turned to the retired Mr. I.C. Herendine for godly counsel and eventually asked him to record a brief testimony for them, given his experiences laboring for the cause of truth and showing the Lord's faithfulness in all circumstances. But where does it begin where he started to have an influence on Reformed Baptist pastors or those that would become so? In the 1950s, Herendine traveled to Lewisburg, Pennsylvania. That was about 15 miles away from where he was at the Bible Truth Depot in Swingle, Pennsylvania. But he went there to attend a church that was pastored by John Reisinger. Reisinger was not a believer in the doctrines of grace, but was influenced by Herendine. Ernie, his brother, also received instruction and was greatly helped by the fellowship with Herendine. John Reisinger wrote this about their encounter, quote, I was converted on a Monday, given a Schofield reference Bible the next day, and enrolled in the Schofield Bible Correspondence course on the third day. I graduated from an Arminian dispensational Bible school. In my first pastorate, I see Herendine, the man who published A.W. Pink's books and tracts, came into our congregation. Under God, Mr. Herendine patiently taught me the truth of sovereign grace. Now, as to his influence on his brother, Ernie, I found this little biographical note on a website for a church called Faith Bible Church, which is in Concord, New Hampshire. It says, as to I.C. Herendine's influence in the life of Ernie Reisinger, who lived from 1919 to 2004, the young Ernest Reisinger, because of his bold witness, compassion for the lost, and passion for strengthening new believers in the faith, was urged to be a part of the founding of a new church in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, which would eventually become Grace Baptist Church. Through the influence of I.C. Herendine, a seller of Christian books through his Bible Truth Depot in Swingle, Pennsylvania, the doctrines of grace became known and loved by the newly formed congregation, and by 1959, Grace Baptist Church was subscribing to the London Confession of 1689. Now, from the story that is taken from Grace Bible Church in Carlisle, a testimony of Walt Chantry given to Scott Leong, my consciousness of being both Baptist and Reformed was clarified during my college years. At the time, and until 1967, we knew only a few others who were Calvinistic Baptists. This is because our chief contacts were with Mr. Herendine of the Bible Truth Depot and John Reisinger, his brother, both of whom were influential in turning Grace Baptist toward the doctrines of grace. 
Not until 1963 and 64 did we become acquainted with Al Martin, Trinity Baptist Church, Montville, which at the time was North Caldwell Alliance Church. They did not constitute as a Reformed Baptist Church until the year 1967. Once Grace Baptist had begun thinking of itself as Reformed, men would keep their ears open for any other Calvinistic Baptists. Ernie Riesinger was the chief man of vision among us. He saw the importance of having a wider association in ministry, and he always had the practical know-how to get from one stage to the next. It was he who suggested that we hold a minister's conference in the late 1960s, and who devised a way to carry it off. I think Ernie was chiefly desirous of seeing a wider, than the local church, faithfulness in proclaiming what God had taught us. Some others of us thought that if we could organize an association of Reformed Baptists, it would strengthen us all. Ernie's vision was met considerably by drawing many Baptists into the streams of the Westminster Seminary, Banner of Truth, and Confessional Reform Truth. His vision being that by drawing many Baptists into the streams of the Westminster Seminary, Banner of Truth, and Confessional Reform Truth, it would be influential in their beginning. Ernie was influential in the reforming later on of Grace Baptist Church in Carlisle. From an article on the history of Grace Church Carlisle by James B. Eshelman, inscribed on the cornerstone of the Grace Baptist Church building is a portion of Paul's letter to the Ephesians taken from verse 6 of the first chapter, to the praise of his glorious grace. The founders met in a meeting in December of 1951. The few individuals who gathered on a Thursday evening in early December 1951 gave no thought to the fact that over 50 years later there would be a congregation of more than 275 members meeting together and at times reflecting on the events that flowed from the prayers and discussions of that evening. The source of that meeting in December 1951 can be traced back through several streams of history. One stream was the conversion of Ernest Riesinger about a decade earlier and his subsequent life and testimony. A second stream concerned the theological drift towards liberalism in mainline Protestant churches from the early 1900s. A third stream was the importance of the writings of A.W. Pink and a promotion of these writings and other books by I.C. Herendine of the Bible Truth Depot in Swingo, Pennsylvania. From the biography of Ernest Riesinger, it says, Following his discharge from the Navy, Ernie returned to Carlisle and in 1946 joined his brother John in starting Riesinger Brothers Construction Company. John soon left the firm, moving to St. Louis, Missouri. Ernie continued on. The Lord blessed his labors and the business prospered. In connection with the business, Ernie renewed his friendship with Mr. Harold Irwin. Mr. Irwin provided Ernie with wise and timely counsel regarding his construction business. The association also led Ernie to develop friendships with Mr. Irwin's two sons, Duke and Roger. Through Ernie's witness to these two young men, both were led to the Lord and to lifelong service in his church. Ernie returned to the Second Presbyterian Church. The church had begun an evangelistic outreach, Biddle Mission, at the corner of Northeast and East North Streets. Ernie devoted his efforts to this mission. He began preaching after he was commissioned by the Presbyterian Church as a lay preacher. Ernie soon became aware of the drift in the Presbyterian Church away from biblical Christianity as a result of liberalism. 
After some time, he left this mission to attend Community Baptist Church at North College. This was a Bible-believing church. Some of the adherents had come from other mainline Protestant churches, desiring to hear the true gospel preached. They were also concerned about the effects of liberalism in their former churches. Community Baptist Church offered a Sunday school program in the morning and a preaching service in the evening. The church without formal structure or organization had only a part-time preacher. A congregational meeting was called as some of the adherents desired their part-time preacher to become a full-time pastor. However, he was not in favor of this change and brought a number of people to the meeting who were not associated with the church. Since the church had no formal membership or constitution, anyone attending the congregational meeting that had ever attended the church was allowed to vote. At the 50th anniversary of Grace Baptist Church in 2001, Roger Irwin gave the following account of that meeting. Quote, People that hadn't been at the church for 10 years or more came for the congregational meeting. Obviously, we didn't win the election. In fact, it was the first congregational meeting that I think I ever attended where one of the men that was somewhat sympathetic to our position stood up and started to talk, and somebody else yelled out, Shut up and sit down! So you can imagine what kind of meeting it was. During the three and a half years, Bob DeWeb served as pastor, the church, through its study of the scriptures and the writings of men ancient and modern, began a transition in its doctrinal understanding of the scriptures. Through contact with Mr. I.C. Herendine, publisher of books and tracts of A.W. Pink, and other Reformed authors, the members gradually came to an understanding of the Reformed faith. The discussions were sometimes heated and searching, and the Lord was very patient with a number of men, including Ernie, who had a difficult time understanding these new doctrines of the grace of God. Of major importance for indoctrinating the church in the understanding of the Reformed faith, at this time were the adult Sunday school classes taught by Duke Irwin. Walt Tranchery, in his testimony, further says, I first recall the term Reformed Baptist being used by a half a dozen Baptist students at Westminster during the years 1960 to 1963. The term provoked quite a bit of controversy because most Presbyterians and Dutch Reformed men assumed that Reformed included the idea of infant baptism. However, it is also true that among Baptists who believed the five points, many did not like the term. That was especially true when Reform was used to imply a style of worship a form of church government, and a view of the law and the gospel. Many disagreed with those ideas as found in the 1689 Confession, while holding to the five points of Calvinism. These controversies arose from the very beginning. And I might add a footnote. Most of those controversies were between Ernie and John Riesinger, and they got to the point where John said in his eulogy, when Ernie passed away, that for a long time in their history together as brothers, Ernie wouldn't even talk to him about covenant theology or the moral law as a guide for the Christian's life. Well, one more note before I go to the story of I.C. Herendine, and that is Ernie Riesinger's influence in Albert Martin's life. Uh, Pastor Martin was visiting with him, as also was his wife Marilyn, and Pastor Martin had not yet embraced the doctrine of a limited atonement, and he did not want Ernie Riesinger to bring it up. So he did not, but what he did do is put into his hands one of the most influential books that Albert Martin had ever read, and that is 
redemption accomplished and applied by John Murray. So the next time that the three got together, Marilyn hinted to Ernie Riesinger, it'd be all right now to talk to him about this subject. That detail is in the biography of Ernest Riesinger by Jeffrey Thomas. But let's get to the story of I.C. Herendine. As I said, this is transcribed from a tape that was made in the year 1968 by Lawrence and Amy Nelson of the Chapel Library. Herendine says, Well, I've been asked, as Brother Nichol said, to tell how the Lord led me from an ardent dispensationalist and premillennialist to the doctrines of grace and to a different understanding of prophecy. We were married April 24, 1907, and immediately went to Buffalo, New York to live. While there, without going into the details, I got in touch with an old man from Lewisburg by the name of Brother A.F. Cole. He was carrying on a small tract work. He was then 81 years of age, and he was looking for a young man to take it over. Well, it so happened that I was the man. And so in the year 1915, we moved from Buffalo to a little place at Swindle, Pennsylvania, 13 miles west of Lewisburg, where John Riesinger pastored later on. And we took over to this tract work. The tracts were all free. We couldn't get them folded, so I had to hire some girls to do the folding. We sent them out all over the world free of charge, paid the postage, and sent out some by freight. Different ones would write in for supplies to distribute them at Billy Sunday's Evangelistic Services and also Gypsy Smith's, and we sent them out free of charge. I never knew where the money would come from to pay the printed bills and the transportation charges, but we never failed to be able to pay the bills on time. I've always made it a point to pay every bill when it was due. The scripture says to owe no man anything. And if you are engaged in the Lord's work and he has called you to it, you can depend upon his furnishing the necessary money. And he never failed. While talking about this, it might be helpful to your faith if I told you one or two experiences that I had in my days. I was visiting Arthur W. Pink in Spartanburg, South Carolina, in March of 1917. Now, I had published two or three books of his before that. The first one I published was The Divine Inspiration of the Bible. And the next one was Why Four Gospels. And then later I published a 400-page book called The Redeemer's Return, a book that was dispensational, premillennial, from stem to stern. But we both held that view at the time. Well, as time went on, he wanted to get into an itinerant ministry. And without going into details, he later left the Northside Baptist Church in Spartanburg and moved to Swingle, Pennsylvania. But before that, he had me to build him a bungalow there where he could live and be a base while he was out in itinerant ministry. Well, in 1919, they moved to Swingle. He wasn't there very long before he went to the Pacific Coast, and he was gone about nine months. Then he returned, but then later on he went to the Pacific Coast again and was busy up and down the coast in ministry. Then later he went to Australia for a couple of years. Now this is my own personal footnote. There were numerous letters that were exchanged between I.C. Herendine and A.W. Pink during those years. And thankfully, Dr. Richard Belcher had those two books published in paperback form. They're an important part of my library because I've taught on the life of A.W. Pink twice. But let me get back to the testimony. 
Well, how Pink got into itinerant ministry was Arnold C. Gabeline had been published in a magazine called Our Hope, and I'd been taking it for, I suppose, 20 years. This is along about 1915 or 1916. I noticed a couple of articles in that different issue of the magazine by A.W. Pink and had no idea who he was. But the first article was entitled, The Philosophy of Spiritualism. And since I had received a couple of inquiries about spiritualism, when I read this, I thought it would be profitable to reprint it and circulate it. And I did. Let me inject right here. Arthur Pink was saved out of spiritualism and theosophy. And when he went into it, he had been in the very depths of it. Well, Murray's biography of Pink says that he was in it for five years. And he came home one night, and his father would be always sitting there waiting for him. He went up into his room, and one time the verse he quoted to him is, There is a way that seems right unto a man, but the end thereof is a way of death. And this had such a profound impact on A.W. Pink that he actually never really came down from his room for a continued time for the next three days, and God converted him because he had been under such conviction. He turned his life over to the Lord because he had that light from his parents who were professing Christians. So, Herendine, to continue, not many people who are in spiritualism ever get saved, but the Lord saved him out of it. So, when I printed this tract, it came from the printers, and I took some of them on a trip to New York and back through Patterson, New Jersey, and around for a couple of weeks. Then when I returned to Swindle, lo and behold, there was a letter on my desk from Arthur W. Pink, Birchfield, Kentucky. Well, in that short time, a copy of this tract had fallen into his hands, and he was quite pleased that I had published it. So we began to correspond, and the more we corresponded, the more we found that we had a lot in common, and we were drawn to each other. Now, Gabeline had written and told Pink that he had more calls to minister the word than he could meet. So Brother Pink, wanting to go out and preach in an itinerant ministry, wondered if Mr. Gabeline could manage to give some of those calls to him, as I understand it. Mr. Gabeline assured him that he could. On the strength of that, Pink had moved to Swindle. Mr. Pink wrote the book, Leanings in Genesis, which Gabeline published. And a little footnote here. All of these books were published before the magazine Studies in the Scriptures ever commenced, because that was started in the year 1922, and during this time, Pink was very much a dispensationalist. But to go on, but later on, Gabeline found out that Pink was a strong Calvinist, and Gabeline wasn't. He was dead set against it. And contrary to his promise, he never turned one single meeting over to Mr. Pink, so that left Pink high and dry. But as I say, in his correspondence, he received invitations to minister the word on the Pacific coast, so he got out into itinerant ministry after all. Well, while I had visited him in Spartanburg, we were talking, and he surprised me. He said, Brother Herendine, I want to write a book on the sovereignty of God. Footnote, this would have been about the year 1917. And I want you to publish it. In those days, I couldn't figure out what he would write about. Sovereignty of God? What would he find to say about that? So he discovered that I was ignorant of the truth. 
When I returned home in his first letter, I'll never forget it. He wrote to me. He started out by quoting John 6, verse 44. No man can come to me except the Father which has sent me draw him. And he underscored the word can. No man can come to me except the Father draw him. Well, friends, I can't tell you how that verse struck me like a shot. I had been reading the scripture so long, but never saw that verse before. Well, it created a great hunger in my heart to know what it meant. And so when the manuscript for the book came, you can believe that I devoured it. And when I would talk with friends and they would stump me with questions, I'd go back and read Pink's book again. Now, this is when Pink was a young man. He was three years younger than I. He was 66 years old when he died on July 15, 1952. Well, I published that book, The Sovereignty of God by Pink, and the Lord was gracious in answering prayer and giving me more light on the subject. And I was brought out and we rejoiced together. That was wonderful. Why hadn't I heard about this before? Well, I'll tell you. When we first married, we attended the Methodist Church there in Buffalo. And a return missionary, Mrs. Bird, was a member of the Plymouth Brethren there, meeting in an assembly hall, and I became acquainted with her. Then she began to deal with me and tried to show me the brethren were the proper people to fellowship with, and not the denominations. In my ignorance, we started attending the services there. And you know how Arminian and how dispensational the Plymouth Brethren are. And of course, they had different speakers from the United States and from abroad. And they were all of the same stripe. And I swallowed it all and thought, surely it was scriptural. And YMCA Secretary Edwin Monroe. He came to me one day and said, you know, I've gotten hold of a wonderful Bible course. And I want to start a class. I want you to be a charter member of the class. I asked him what course it was, and he said, the Schofield Bible Correspondence Course. I said, Edwin, I don't know anything about this course, but if you recommend it, I'll join the class. Well, you know, I'd never studied the Bible to speak of, but the first lesson was on the nature of the scriptures, and the second on the truth of inspiration of the scriptures. I was carried away. Then, on salvation and rewards, lost and found, the seven dispensations, and so forth. So I became indoctrinated and knew nothing else. Then in March 1913, we moved from Buffalo to take up this tract work and swindle. And of course, I didn't get any further along with the Schofield course. I have the books at home showing the study and work I put on them. And so I held a Schofield class and swindle. Then I went to Philadelphia a couple of times and heard Dr. Schofield speak and also went to the YMCA and heard him and met him there, and had a short conversation with him. In the middle of 1924, we were invited to move to Cleveland, Ohio. Knowing a printer there, and my wife's people lived there, and I thought I'd go there and carry on my mail-order work and open up a bookstore, too. And so we did. We were there five and a half years. We would have stayed there had it not been for the stock market crash in October of 1929. And on that account, I had to get out. We had seven children, and I had a heavy expense of all kinds. I was paying $125 a month rent there, and I had two helpers, plus nine of us to feed and clothe and buy school supplies. So I found out that some people had lost all their savings. 
and was told that some literally pulled the hair out of their heads when they found out they had lost everything. Some lost everything through the banks and so on. But through the goodness of the Lord, I was dealing with the Erie County Bank and it wasn't destroyed. Later on, after the crash, I was released from my lease in the building and decided to return to Swindle. And it was better to go back there as that address was known all over the world, for our ministry, he means. And when you establish a new address, people lose track of you. While I was in Cleveland, one day a copy of Philip Morrow's magazine, The Last Hour, fell into my hands. I don't know how. I knew he published it, but didn't want it at first. But in his copy of the magazine, he had an article purporting to show that the church age was not the parenthetical dispensation that the dispensationalists say it is. And when I read it, you know, I was shaken. I had not the slightest idea there was that much on the subject. Well, time went on and I forgot it. Then with the stock market crash, we returned to Swingle. And then A.W. Pink returned to near Swingle for the second time. We were out walking one day, and when we got back, we stopped in front of the house and were chatting, when he, out of the blue, said, Brother Herendine, have you ever given much thought or study to the subject of the millennium? Well, I said, yes, I have somewhat, more or less. Why do you ask? He said, I wondered if you had. You know, I don't know whether there is any room for an earthly millennium or not, and I don't think there is. I said, well, why do you say that? Pink replied, in my meditation of John's gospel on Lazarus, it says, he will raise him up at the last day. And in my mind, I linked it up with Hebrews 1 verse 2, where it says, God has in these last days. Where's the room for an earthly millennium? Oh, to question the millennium, that really was something. Well, he said, think it over. We'll talk about it later. Well, that millennium was before my eyes all the while, and I couldn't get anywhere until finally I recalled that Peter, in his second epistle, didn't say we look for the millennium, but he said we look for a new heavens and a new earth. And then I thought, isn't it strange that if there is to be an earthly millennium, such as the dispensationalists teach, that Christ himself never gave a hint about it, nor did the evangelists. You would have thought he would go into the subject at some length. Well, when we met again, Mr. Pink asked, how far did you get with the millennium subject? Well, I said, this is what has come before me. And we both agreed at that point. He was not prepared to give it up himself, but was just beginning to get light on the subject. And so was I. Well, he moved away and he was so busy that he didn't get a chance to write much. And so we didn't have any more contact on it for a while. But I wanted to know who was right and who was wrong. So I got in touch with Philip Morrow and later came to know him very well. All business again. I got all his books, but the one that impressed me most of the time was the Gospel of the Kingdom. I read it and reread it. Then he would get hold of tracts and other booklets and forward them to me. And I got help from them. So I began to be more certain that I'd been wrong all the while and that I needed to get set right. I was most desirous of knowing the truth. Now, you know that a lot of dispensationalists are not so desirous. And when I began to talk with them about my new views, it wasn't so pleasant. I was getting out a new catalog at that time. You know, in those days, we couldn't go up to Williamsport to a religious bookstore. In those days, they weren't in existence. 
And so if you wanted religious literature at that time, you had to write to the Loso brothers, or Revel Books, or Moody Press. Brother Cole had a lending library, and he, like Brother Nelson, and I believe he means Lawrence Nelson here of the Chapel Library, would send out books on loan free of charge, and people would read some of those books and say, I'd like to have my own copy. So I said one day, why don't we put in a supply of books? And we did. Then I was reading the Gospel of the Kingdom, I think, for the third time, and I remember so well, my wife does too, sitting in the living room. I said, Mother, I don't know about anybody else, but I feel that I have solid ground under my feet now, and I think I know where I stand. I'm convinced that I have been wrong. Well, she said, then are you going to believe one thing and be teaching another? Well, I said, by the grace of God, I'm not. So I was getting out our catalog. I put in a few pages of a plea to the reader to re-examine the millennial teachings in the light of the scriptures. I said, don't take man's word for it, but follow the scriptures and prove all things for yourself. So I sent a catalog out and then the brickbats began to fly. Oh, I received some of the nastiest letters. I remember the students down at Dallas Seminary began to send me cards and letters saying, take my name off the mailing list immediately. We thought the Bible Truth Depot was sound. Now we found out different, and we are not going to patronize it. And we're going to tell our friends about it. Well, that began to affect the financial end of the work. And my income went down, down, down. So I had to do something to support my family. I began to sell nap shoes all around the area. Lewisburg in the vicinity. I sold a good many pair of shoes. Then gradually, as I sent out this literature, first one here and one there began to get their eyes opened and began to encourage me and gave me more boldness to stand for the right. Mr. Gabeline himself wrote me a very harsh letter, and I received quite a few of them. But the Lord honored my stand, and we began to come back, and the work began to pick up again. You see, before that, I'd been in touch with the dispensational crowd, almost only, but now I received encouragement from here and there. So I got on my feet again and was publishing a different line of literature, entirely a different line of literature. Just to show how the Lord honors faith, A.W. Pink wrote this quite large work on an exposition of the Hebrews. I had been dining with Mr. Herman Baker of Baker Bookhouse in Grand Rapids, Michigan. He was in Sunbury one day and invited me to come and have dinner with him. And we were talking and he wondered why I didn't publish this work on the Hebrews. I said, Mr. Baker, it was entirely beyond me financially. So he suggested we publish it together. I agreed. It was to be published in three volumes, quite large volumes. And Mr. Baker asked, how many copies would you want? I told him, well, I'd want a thousand anyhow, not realizing how large a work it would be, what it would run into in finances. Then he said, three large volumes would have to sell for seventeen ninety-five a set. Well, here's another footnote. I actually bought A.W. Pink's commentary on Hebrews in 1981. It was the second A.W. Pink book that I ever owned. And I paid eighteen ninety-five. It was a single volume. And that's pretty amazing. But I see Herendine said he had ordered a thousand sets. 
while I raked and scraped and saved what I could in order to meet the invoice when it became due. Finally, the due date was drawing nigh, and I didn't have all the money. I was on my knees begging the Lord. I said, Lord, I want to obey your word. I want to owe no man anything. I want to pay that bill on a due date. Then I received a letter from a lady in downtown Chattanooga, Tennessee. I hadn't met her, but I knew of her, and I'd lacked $1,500, having enough to pay the bill. And if I was to pay it on time, I had to pay it within the next day or two. So this morning, the letter came from this lady, and inside was a check for $1,500. She said, my father has died and turned his business over to his wife. My brother and myself and my brother wanted my share, so I sold it to him, enclosed as a tithe of what I had received. Back while I was in Cleveland, it was nearing the holiday season, and I had ordered quite a few Bibles, and I was lacking $2,000. I don't know whether you have ever heard of the Dean Steers Foundation in Philadelphia, but it was established by a Lutheran preacher so that people could send money for missions work anonymously. Somebody to this day, and I don't know who it was, had sent them $2,000, and they forwarded that to me. They opened the letter by saying, Let us rejoice and be glad and give honor unto him. And inside was a draft for $2,000, just the amount I needed. And to this day, I don't know where it came from. I've had different experiences. I published one edition of The Sovereignty of God and was lacking $500 the day the bill came due. And the Lord sent it in. You know, that's strengthening to your faith. I just want to rejoice and praise the Lord. What a faithful God. I used to publish a track called The God Who Counts. We had a small account one time when the children were small with a department store near Swindle. We had seven children, three boys and four girls. I wanted to pay that bill, but I couldn't. The time was drawing short and in spite of my pleading with the Lord, the money didn't come in. It was $52 and some few cents. And I said, Lord, I need that money to honor your word. You can't guess who it came from. Up in New York State near Buffalo, the Plymouth Brethren had a meeting, and I knew them all, of course. The secretary treasurer was none other than Don Reiner of Swingle. And it seems that they authorized him to send me the offering one Lord's Day, and that money order was for $52.15, just what I needed. I'd followed up on the study of prophecy, and the more I studied, the more convinced I was that I was now right. And of course, I had quite a bit of opposition from different ones who tried to turn me from it. But the Lord deeply impressed upon me that it was the truth that I was rejoicing in it. And so I've gone on to this present day. And the Lord has been pleased to use my humble efforts of the right kind. The Lord has used that to correct the understanding of many, some of whom are in this room this afternoon. I published the first edition of The Sovereignty of God, but I had much trouble in selling it. Seemed nobody wanted it back in 1918. But finally, I succeeded in disposing of the addition of 2,000 copies. But when I left the work of Bible Truth Depot 12 years ago, and he's talking in 1968, it was my best seller, and I believe it is today. It has been published by Baker Bookhouse. Don Reiner has published it, and it was published by the Banner of Truth Trust in England. But I have asked different preachers, how come you got hold of the truth of God's sovereignty? They'd say, well, somebody put Pink's book in my hands. I'd have them tell me that time and time again. 
and a conference at Carlisle, Pennsylvania, Ashland, Kentucky, Birmingham, Alabama, and other places have resulted from the influence of that book. Well, that's the story. About 12 years ago, I had reached my 75th birthday, and the work was getting to be too much for me. So I knew I had to quit. I didn't know who or where to turn to get someone to take over the work. Well, I turned to Don Reiner. And if you may know the history or not, uh, Reiner Publications took over the Bible Truth Depot. And when I had moved to Grand Rapids, Michigan in December of 1988, about a month later, Ken Kriegel bought the entire bookstore of Reiner Publications. So there were 10,000 volumes that were sitting on the floor at Kriegel's that I went through one by one. But let's finish up this story. I didn't know who or where to turn to get someone to take over the work, so I turned to Don Reiner, who was helping me some, so I told him, Don, I've got to quit. Would you like to take it over? So he did, and has been carrying it on ever since. I helped him for a time, but then I had to completely quit. But you know my heart was in that work. I looked forward to it every day. Oh, it was just wonderful, the letters we received. Bless your heart, I'd been in touch with dear brother Robert McCall for some few years. Don't know how long. In my few travels around the country, whenever I stopped to call on these people I'd been corresponding with, I found the choice of spirits just wonderful because we were of one mind, interested in the same things. The Lord has given me friends all over the country. People on the West Coast urged me to come out and visit them, but I wasn't able and so I had to give it up to my regret. But I praise the Lord that I can look back over the years and thank God that they weren't wasted years. I made many mistakes and realized that, but my whole heart desire was to serve the Lord and to serve Him to His praise and to His glory. And I would appreciate it if you would remember me in your prayers as the Lord brings me to your mind. End of story. Now, what's interesting, I.C. Herendine was born in the year 1883. He said he was older than A.W. Pink by three years. Pink was born in 1886. But I.C. Herendine died in the year 1982. So God gave him a ripe old age before he passed away of 99 years. Well, as I said, after I had started this podcast, I received a note from Isaac who was doing his own research there in Pennsylvania and sent me an article from a newspaper, Pennsylvania Newspaper Archive, Harrisburg Telegraph, May 17th, 1918. So I'll keep in context that this was very close to World War One, And this article says, among cases scheduled for today is that of Irwin C. Herendine, who is alleged to have conducted a Bible Truth Depot at Swingle, Pennsylvania. Herendine, it is said, distributed seditious literature, including a booklet commenting on the reason Christians should go to war. The booklet speaks disparagingly of warfare and urges true Christians to remain pacific. Here indeed was styled a saint of God. So in the article it says he was charged with sedition. That's pretty amazing. Irwin C. Herendine, from Pennsylvania, who is said to have styled himself as one of God's children, was brought before Judge Charles B. Whitmer in federal court here this morning, 
Charged with distribution of anti-war literature, Heron Deaton was one of the operators of the Bible Truth Depot in Swingle, a little Union County village. The Truth Depot is a publishing and book-selling firm, and among the pamphlets and religious tracts marketed by the organization were Shall We Smite? and also Should a Christian Fight? and A Word of the Cross, alleged to be anti-war publications opposing warfare. He pleaded for mercy. Sentence in his case was deferred and will be given at a later session of the court. Well, Isaac also sent me the obituary for Mr. Herendine. Erwin C. Herendine, theologian, publisher, Lewisburg. Erwin Charles Herendine, Lewisburg, a noted theologian and publisher, died Sunday at 11 p.m. at Nottingham Village Point Township. He had been there since 1978. Prior to living at his present address, he had lived at North 3rd and North 6th Streets, Lewisburg, for many years. He was a native of New York and was born in Geneva, June 8th, 1883, a son of the late, and so on. And it talks about who he is survived by, but it also says he wrote numerous theological books and has for many years published A.W. Pink's works. Memorial contributions may be made to the Reformed Baptist Church in Lewisburg, which that little detail tells me that uh, he stayed the end of his years in the church of John Riesinger, which would have been somewhat interesting, as you may know, John Riesinger was a New Covenant theologian, and A.W. Pink would have opposed him on the moral law as a rule of life for a Christian. Well, I hope that some of this information has been helpful for you. This is the Man of God podcast, a ministry of Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary, Owensboro, Kentucky.